Um, <laughs> funny or interesting, you say? Yeah. Wow. There's nothing funny about prison, but there's funny things that happen in there. You're right about that. Uh, back in the 80s, <clears throat> mid-80s, I was in San Quentin, and Charlie Manson was in San Quentin at that time. And I knew Charlie. Uh, Charlie was kind of a fool. He was an idiot. Did he introduce himself as Charlie? Did people call him Charlie? Charlie. Charlie's, Charlie's his name. Everybody called him Charles. You know? Yeah. Uh, sarca- <laughs> sarcastically, we called him Charles. He didn't like that. But anyway, he was just a little short runt. He wasn't as bad as the medium. Welcome to Navigating Freedom, a podcast about freedom, whatever that means. Navigating Freedom is made by a team of producers in Solano State Prison and me, Matthew Schneeman, on the outside with help from Lisa Strong of The Uncuffed Project. This week's episode is mostly dedicated to a couple of men who are in turn dedicated to putting the identity of the Zodiac Killer to rest. The voice you heard isn't one of them. That's Boston Woodard. We're overlooking the San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz to the right, the Golden Gate Bridge to the left, Boston did over 40 years in prison for robbery, and during that time, he met some famous and infamous people, Charles Manson being one of them. I may need to explain who Charles Manson is for younger listeners, though that kind of blows me away because he's such a big character. Charles Manson was the leader of a cult, though I don't think that term fits that well necessarily, and he was charged for first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. In the end, his followers killed about seven people in the late 60s. It was an incredible cultural flashpoint that embodied a lot of fears of drugs, sex, you know, the youth um, changing America, and I argue you can see those changes and those fears run through contemporary American history up to this day. Massive figure. Uh, and the reaction to him, even more massive. And so, if you want to know, you can spend your life reading about Charles Manson. And some do. So anyway, he was in the uh, Beavis B section, and when he gave him his guitar back, two of the strings were missing on his guitar. Mm. And I know, and everybody else knows, the cops took it just to fuck with him, you know? So when he opened the case up, he saw yelling, you son of a bitches, where's my strings? So he, he couldn't do that. So after about him bitches for about a week about it, the sergeant finally brought him up. Oh, yeah, we found these in your property. He goes, you son of a bitches took them off. They was on the guitar. <laughs> so anyway, and he whined about that. Even after he got his strings back, he whined about it for the next month. You know, them, them damn strings and what they did to him, man. And then he would tell jokes that was just not funny, man. <laughs> the stupidest. I, I, you know, I don't remember him because they were so bad. But he had these jokes that were drier than dry and stupider than stupid. And he and it takes eight minutes for him to say the joke. <laughs> and there's no punchline at the end of it. There's nothing. Oh, I wish you could remember yeah, one. So, so he's... <laughs> nothing? No details come when, to mind? When he started telling me a joke after I knew him, I said, nah, nah, bullshit. I don't want to hear that shit. And I'd walk away while he's telling it, you know? I'd walk down the tear. But anyway... Uh, Man, we got to remember those jokes. Oh, I'll have to remember. I'll have to think back. You're talking uh, 35 years ago. Yeah. You know, a long time ago. A couple of weeks later, Boston remembered one of those jokes. It's not very good, but it also is kind of perfect. I, I, you know, I remember one time I went into B section, and I remember going in there one time, and he was eating. Everybody makes top ramen soup, and then they throw meat or tuna fish in it, or whatever they, they want, right? And he was eating a bowl of top ramen soup one time. I said, what you put in your top ramen today? He goes, uh, 
He goes, shit, what do you think I put in? I put shit in there. That's what I put in there. <laughs> you sick bastard. <laughs> I laughed. It was funny. You know, <laughs> He's a little weasel, man. I, I, I actually kind of, people in the general population wouldn't want to hear this, but I actually kind of liked the guy a little bit. You know, he was kind of, kind of funny, you know, even though he's an idiot. Just kind of, he's a different, different person inside when you meet him, man. Just a clown, just a fucking dude. A little short, dingy clown, man. That's all he was. Charlie yeah. Manson. But, you know, I, I met a lot of uh, interesting people in there, uh, infamous and famous. I met three of the worst ser serial killers ever in California. They're still in. Uh, Ed Kemper, he was the tallest serial killer. He's, uh, I think he was he's 6'10". He killed 13. That is tall. Yeah. And the same time, there was another serial killer working. They didn't know who was killing who back then. It was named Herbert Mullen. David Carpenter, this is going to be weird. David Carpenter killed people right where we're looking at right now, right? Uh, Mount Tamil Pius, the high peak where you see over there. Uh -huh. All these foothills you see. This is where he killed all the people, man. And he killed 10 of them. And he called him the trailside killer. But he didn't only meet serial killers. Uh, Marlon Brando's son, Christian Brando. I did uh, five years with him. Uh, I think I'm the only guy he ever took a picture with in prison. I've got him. Yeah, that that picture. Uh, yeah, and uh, impressive. What was he put in for? He was in for. Uh, he shot and killed his sister's boyfriend. Mm. Uh, he was beating her up, and uh, Christian. They got in a, a scuffle, and Christian shot him. And the reason why he only got manslaughter instead of, you know, murder one or something, because it was during a struggle, and the guy was trying to kill him, and he ended up killing the guy. And the smartest thing he could have done at the time, he did it. He picked the phone up and he called the police and said, "I just shot a guy." During the course of my friendship with him, I actually met his mad dad, Marlon Brando, uh, three times in the visiting room. I, I sat at the table, ate hamburgers with him. We uh, talked, and so that was pretty cool, man. Chopping it up with Brando. Yeah, and it didn't feel like I met Marlon Brando, the actor. I met Marlon Brando, my friend's father. Mm -hmm. It was a different, different kind of a thing. But he was funny. His dad was funny as hell, the old man. And uh, yeah, what did he say? Well, he, he was, was just telling. He would. Uh, he would tell. He would did do little parlor jokes. He'd like pull quarters on behind your ear. He, he made a, he made a handkerchief disappear in his hand. What's Brando doing? Marlon Brando did this, man. <laughs> somebody, somebody along the way, his uh, big you know acting career had taught him some jokes, tricks, you know, magic tricks. Man, so the the takeaway from this conversation so far is Charles Manson not funny. Marlon Brando, Brando, funny as hell. <laughs> yeah, funny as they come, man. Okay, would you like one more Manson joke? Why not? Boston sent me an old article that he wrote uh, about his time knowing Manson. He's Boston writes a lot. Uh, he's a great writer. And preceding the quote, he was talking about how Manson would play guitar and it wouldn't be that great of guitar. So one day Manson says to him, quote, How many prison guards does it take to screw in a light bulb? He asked me. I don't know. How many? I said. None, he said. No need for a light bulb, bro. Them dim fuckers never been too bright anyway. Manson would laugh like hell and say, Did you get it, bro? I would rather have him pick up his guitar than tell another joke. Maybe. Okay, now to the meat of the story. Producer Brian Mazza helped pull this one together. Brian is in Solano State Prison, and he met a man named Ken Gage, who says that he met a man 
who not only knows who the Zodiac Killer was, but also killed him. This is all detailed in an unpublished book. And I also have, uh, I think I got Kenny Gage is ready to go. So uh, um, I forgot that I was going to record him this early. I told him right after breakfast that we probably be recording today. As a matter of fact, I could, I could probably go and get him if you could hang on. Would that okay. be okay? All right, so hang on a second, and I'll be right back. This call okay. and be monitored and recorded. Okay, here we are. Can you hear me now? Yep. Hey, Ken. When did you first become familiar with the Zodiac case? How did you come to write a book about it? Before you meet Ken, let's give you a little taste of his book. There's a lot more of him in that than in this next conversation. The book's called Zodiac, The Truth No One Wants Told. So you believe the media that some unknown California psycho calling himself the Zodiac murdered at random a couple dozen young women, a couple men too. And not one of hundreds of investigators assigned over these intervening decades has solved any of those crimes. He was this astrology-obsessed nut, hating women, jealous of young lovers. Absolute, Absolute crap. crap. But who am I to write with such apparent arrogance? I alone didn't unravel these Zodiac cases, and I don't fancy myself an ace crime writer or envision riches from the sale of this book. In fact, I was once a rather square John, working class, but I'm now California State Prison number C71542, the scumbag low-life convicted murderer who has served over 30 years in prison and may never be released. So what could I know here living under a rock? And how can you believe a word I say? That's Ken Gage. But when I talked to him over the phone, it was hard to get that full personality, so to speak, out of the conversation. Well, in about 2006, I met a guy from Canada who was in Solano Prison. A man named Paul Mozzie. But he had hooked up with this guy who was a retired IRS agent. I guess they met down in Puerto Vallarta. This guy, Paul um, Mazzi, I'm speaking of, the Canadian, he uh, allowed himself to be talked into becoming a financial advisor for uh, this ex-IRS agent. The relationship, business and friend, doesn't end well. Paul ends up getting in a fight with this man and killing him. And in the course of telling me his story, they're promoting this Zodiac movie. 2007, David Fincher releases his movie Zodiac. And, and uh, there's a big article that appears in the San Francisco Chronicle, which revisits the old Zodiac cases from the 60s and 70s. And it shows uh, a, a suspect photo and it shows some handwriting. And it and it portrayed the Zodiac case, and he's got more information, and he's learning that... Paul Mazzi is learning that... Uh, the the uh, Zodiac had killed in certain locations within Northern California here. And interestingly enough, uh, he said that this guy that he used to work for, who was a retired uh, IRS agent, would, have, would uh, instruct him to drive to some of these locations. Paul starts to wonder about the man he killed. Uh, 
he would have Paul drive because the guy was a little bit of an alcoholic. He used to drink these uh, malt liquors, canned malt liquors. And uh, when we, he would have him stop at these uh, unusual locations to fall, like Lake Berryessa. Locations where the Zodiac murders occurred. And he would uh, just sort of sit there in the car and uh, mumble a little bit and, uh, and sometimes break into tears after this expose on um, the Zodiac killers, he started piecing it together that this guy had been the Zodiac killer in his earlier years. Hello. Hey, Kenneth. I'm Matthew, um, by the way. I'm, I'm Brian's colleague on the outside uh, putting together this podcast. Uh, pardon, I, I, can't hear you. I can't hear you very good at all. Oh, hi. I'm Matthew. I'm Matthew, Brian's colleague. Hello. Um, is Kenneth hard of hearing? You can hear okay, right? No, not really. He's old. Okay, yeah, yeah. He can't hear me very well. Kenneth is in his 70s. His hearing is going. Like many of us who are in our 70s. He's been locked up for over 40 years. And while I have you here, let me make it clear that this is not going to be a true crime episode. Though there is some drama to be had. I promise you no revelations about the Zodiac Killer or anything like that. But I hope some revelations will come. The one that appeared for me was the reality that septuagenarians and octogenarians, our elders, are spending their golden years, so to speak, in prison. Could you ask him about right. uh, Paul and relationship specifically? Also, I'll be bleeping the accused's name because I found no credence to Kenneth and Paul Mazzi's theory. Can you can you can you shed some light and hash that out as far as what what you learned from Paul about what the relationship was like? Yes, when Paul was working as a uh, receptionist at in Puerto Vallarta at, uh, at Casanita Resort in Puerto Vallarta, when he met. Uh, tried to check in there. The story, as told, seems like a movie. Paul was working at a resort on the west coast of Mexico, and the man he'll later accuse of being the Zodiac walks in. Acting a little bit drunk and obnoxious and causing a disturbance with some of the other guests. And so Paul tried to settle him down a little bit, gave him a, a couple of shots of bourbon, and uh, he started acting not so crazy and started telling him... Uh, the story about his life, and and uh, th- this guy started revealing to Paul gradually that uh, he had millions of dollars stuck in banks all over the world, that he had uh, obtained, uh, at first he, he tried to say legal, legal means to investments in real estate, whatever, but later on he admitted to Paul that these were monies that he had uh, sort of uh, extorted from, uh, uh, you know, two and a half decades of working for the IRS. You you have handwriting and a police sketch similarity. Kenneth and Paul's theory is based off of location coincidences, handwriting similarities, and a resemblance to a police sketch. You might be able to tell I'm kind of almost yelling into my phone because Kenneth can barely hear me. But unfortunately, those forms of evidence don't stand alone. They they can't uh, be used. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't understand you. Do I have anything else? What? 
any other forms of evidence besides handwriting or police sketches? Well, I, I, I have the handwriting that's in the, the suspect, the Zodiac suspect's handwriting, and I have that that anyone can, can compare to handwriting. But, but so you anyone understand, can do, you understand pardon? that's not quite enough. Was Man, the, was I can't the, understand. I can't understand anything he's saying. Hardly, I can't understand it. Hey, Matthew, it's Brian again. Hey. All right, so is there anything else for Kenny right now before you get the disc? The disc contained Ken's book, Zodiac, The Truth No One Wants Told. It's over 700 pages long, and it's great. It's not nonfiction, but it's great. It's about how his friend Paul Mozzie committed a murder during a fight with a man he was living with. And years later, when the Zodiac movie came out, he noticed some similarities and determined that the person he had killed was the Zodiac killer. But the book is so much more than that. It's a sweeping history of the Vietnam War, the Watts riots. It's like historical fiction. It's written in this old school pulp novel verbiage. And it's pretty fun. Here's an excerpt. This is from the scene where Paul Mozzie meets the person that they think is the Zodiac Killer. This is down in Mexico at a resort where Paul is working. The money man. Maybe five foot ten, but a thick barrel chested brute with obviously red dyed hair. The gray white sides grown out since the dye job. Sweaty and drunk, wearing a smeared off tan, he appeared to be in a foul mood. A menacing cross between Captain Kangaroo and Brian Wilson, he wore frumpy, disheveled clothing with black socks and sandals, meeting the elegantly tiled rotunda floor. I wasn't convinced of any Zodiac revelations, but I did feel there was something in here, something about the story of the story. Um, sure. What, what yeah. are you thinking, producer Brian Mazza? Well, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, we should... Uh... Wait until you get the the disc. I think it's a, I think it's pretty compelling. You know, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, it, it uh, all is really leaning all on Paul Mozzie and just him believing him, though. And like the really compelling stuff. And yeah, yeah, that's pretty hard. It is. Um, see, just one second. If my husband's able to talk, just one sec. He's... Hello. Hi, is this Joe? Speaking. This is Joe Gallo. He knew Ken before and during prison. Well, I I would like to give you a little bit of input about him as a as a person I know from the San Jose area. Yeah, this is a very let's put it this way: you don't find I don't find a lot of people like Kenneth. Uh, but uh, he's never used any drugs of any kind in all the years I've known him. He's just a straight arrow kind of guy. I mean, I met him when he was, you know, before he went in, and I, of course, uh, knew him while he was in there when I uh, had a domestic case and went in for quite some time. I don't know which word to use. Obsession seems mean. Um but it's well, there I'm, are a lot no, of I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you because, you know, uh, let's face it. Uh, we have to be objective, you and I. And I uh, I tell him, hey, look, 
I know you're on to something here, but Kenny, you know, the bigger focus, honestly, uh, you know, is on what happened to you. Joe's referring to the excess of Ken's sentence. He feels that Ken's crime was self-defense, and he doesn't deserve life without the possibility of parole. Ken was put in for killing someone that was staying with him and his wife in a fight. Ken says that there were threats and evidence of theft. They fought a struggle for a gun. Ken got the gun. It was a pretty violent event, and I can see why it wouldn't fit what most people would consider a normal death that resulted in self-defense. But still, life without possibility of parole is a big sentence. You know, that was, I mean, he has, how can I say this, uh, make it sound right, because I knew one other person that is long gone in my life that was like this. It, it, they have bigger ideas sometimes than maybe I do. A more broad perspective of the world, life, and so, yeah. He may be on to something that, like, okay. <laughs> okay, well, Ken. <laughs> it, it seems to be some, <laughs> some so he, similarities. He with it a little more than I would, you know what I mean? But I don't know. Uh, you know, he's not he's not in Bizarro World, you know what I'm saying? So. Well, I think he, uh, um, yeah. he believes Paul. Yeah. And Paul told him a very well, good story. Like, the actual... A manuscript. That might be the linchpin. That might be the linchpin. You may be absolutely correct with that because when you see people when they're down and out, and you have all the time in the world to chit chat, it's different. You know, it's like being in a desert and you meet a kindred folk, and you're both sitting there drinking water, and there's no water. You know, it's like it, and hey, there's no water. Yeah, you you yeah. hook up. You know, you you lock in. Your brains lock in. This has been a tremendous journey, and, and the guy is getting up in the age. His health is not that good. They're wasting money keeping him in there. An inmate How's your health? Uh, Robin said health? you had a heart uh, attack before. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of recovering okay. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to stay healthy. You think they're going to give uh, you compassionate release or something? Yeah, I hope so. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. I've got a call from another state. All right, my friend. God bless. Bye-bye. So did Ken Gage believe his buddy killed the Zodiac Killer because he's his buddy? Prison trauma bonding? Or is he just obsessive? So you're Joe Gage. Are do you have a? Are you related to Kenneth? Yeah. Okay. H- how are you related? I'm a, a son. I got a hold of Ken's sons. This is Joe. Kind of hold that in your head. Um, I mean, I suppose you already had some distance with your dad, so maybe it's not super. Was it a big effect on you? Yeah, I, uh, kind of a mix. Right, 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 right. Because we were worried that you know there was some distance. Right, right. Um, you know, my parents were divorced. Um, remarried, but but it was still kind of I guess a shock. I, I guess I've always had uh, maybe a hatred for thieves. <laughs> As a result, nothing worse than a thief. <laughs> you know when people say that um, your 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 things aren't worth more than a human life, 
So sometimes I disagree with that. It depends on the person. Maybe my things are worth more than the life of the thief. You're saying that comes back to this kind of like original sin when you were nine <laughs> years old, when well, I, your dad was like pushed to this breaking could, point and something bad happened. Perhaps, perhaps it has some influence. I guess I can't really know, but, but the, you know, that, uh, yeah, I've always kind of had a thing about these being kind of the lowest form of life. Joe's parents got divorced and Ken moved to California. So Joe and his brother, Ken Jr. weren't very close with Ken Sr. What's, yeah. um, what's your brother like? Oh, he, he's interesting. He's a lot different than I am. Um, you know, I, I work as an engineer. I'm very technical. Mm-hmm. And he is, um, he, 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 uh, he knows a lot of obscure things, <laughs> yeah. a, lot, a lot of things of you know, mythology and uh, li- literature and uh, more pop culture, film and theater type stuff, you know, whereas I'm more more just technical and um, boring. <laughs> Do you get along with your brother? Oh, yeah. You guys close? Oh, yeah. We, we get along. We're, we're close. And this is Ken Jr., Ken's other son. Yeah, I I think we 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 both have a little bit. You maybe more than me. The uh, that Midwest accent. Oh, hey, how how you doing? <laughs> but I don't really have that that much. <laughs> oh no, not at all. <laughs> I'm more liberal, and he's more conservative. I try to buy him as a joke, like liberal things, and he buys me weird conservative things. So just just the other day, I was. <laughs> jogging around in this t-shirt that that was sort of like it has a, like the american flag on it and it says the only country that landed on the moon or something you know and so it's just sort of chest thumping for america about the moon landing i guess you could say the t-shirt and he got this shirt for me and i went to this sort of liberal coffee shop with the rainbow flag and I felt like I got a very cool reception <laughs> from the there with this kind of right-wing American shirt on. Does he get obsessed about anything? Has he had any kind of conspiratorial or investigative mystery in other areas? No, not really. I mean, not conspiratorial, but I mean, I'm I'm just not sure where the whole interest in the Zodiac Killer comes from. I mean, I, it's nothing. You know, I don't know. You know what? You know, and my my dad was just sort of this musician hippie guy, and he seemed like the nicest guy in the world. You know, when I was a kid, and uh, so it just seemed really weird. Like, like why would they keep this guy in prison all these years? You know, I still think like that. Like, like you know, I I mean. Sure, I guess you could say he had a bad day and killed someone, and they hid the evidence because he was on meth or whatever when he did it. But, but also, I've never fucked up and had and killed anyone, you know. So, <laughs> never been on meth. I've never had these problems. Ken Jr. said his dad was on meth when he committed the crime. Ken himself says that though he had done drugs like meth before, he wasn't a regular user and wasn't on drugs during the crime. Ken Jr. is citing, perhaps, an appeal Ken's lawyer made that tried to say evidence of drugs use was withheld during the trial in order to make Ken's crime seem more intentional. Joe Gallo told me that Ken was just protecting his wife from a drug-addled person. Joe and Ken have also said 
that there was bias and corruption going on during Ken's trial. But the thing is, I don't care. Obviously, I care. It doesn't matter. And it does matter. What matters is addressing real violence. Is that over 40 years ago, a group of people looked into one moment of violence like it was a crystal ball and said, this man will never be fit to live in general society. One in seven serving a life sentence right now. And Ken's been there ever since. No parole. That still seems like, I don't know, like, like weird that no matter how many times we've tried to help him, get out and you know and written for clemency and all this stuff there's it's like a stone wall you know ken gage does music in prison teaches music ken jr is a musician as well that electronic track i just spoke over was ken's yeah i'm i'm in an electronica band called church of the nine candles or c9c and just weird electronica music really just Let's get back to the Zodiac story. An inmate asked. I'm just, uh, I'm actually on my way up on the bus. I was traveling between LA and San Francisco getting interviews for all the other episodes of Navigating Freedom. The handwriting in his will and the handwriting in all those Zodiac letters. And if that's not a, if that's not a mask, I'll kiss your butt. <laughs> well, I mean, that handwriting is just isn't, that's, that's not a, a very strong form of evidence. Pardon? That's not a very strong form of evidence. Handwriting is just like a small uh, thing. Oh, okay, yeah, that's right. Oh, 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 okay, yeah. You, that's okay. You can gloss over that, and you can gloss over how his photograph looks like the police sketch. But the problem is you, you can't just keep ignoring his presence at all these sites and his relationships with the different victims, particularly Darlene. Darlene's parents, and, and the, the word she's saying upon her death, she's uh, whispering to the police. She's been shot several times, and the policeman is in the window while she's still sitting in her corvair, and she's saying, and, and, and it's so softly that that's all he can get out. She's trying to say, As a victim died, they made a noise, and Ken and Paul think that noise was the first syllable of the Zodiac Killer's name. If you want to dismiss all that as a coincidence, okay, that the victims are saying his name, if you want to dismiss all that, then there's nothing I can say to convince you. Because you just, its it, to me, it's like somebody having their head in the sand. Yeah, and I can understand uh, how that's frustrating for you. Yeah. 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 How come you so, believe I, Paul so much? Because you Pardon? have to, you have to believe Paul. You've written all of his accounts in his relationship with Mike Axum. How come you uh, uh, trust I, him I, so I, much? I, I, how, how, how do I? Excuse me, excuse me. How do I trust Paul so much? Yeah. Why? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. The, the, I, the reason I didn't trust Paul so much, I know how he is treated by the legal system. I understood immediately. I'm very familiar with what happens in criminal cases. And he had a very controversial case when they first started, they gave him nothing. I had to show him how to get discovery and force him to give him all of his own police reports. You have 60 seconds remaining. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to call back, so 
Both Ken and Paul think their trials were unfair. And even if they weren't, I think their sentencing was. And that makes you doubt things. It's not that people lose trust and they think up conspiracy theories. It's more, I think, trust shifts. Ken lost trust in government because of his sentence, and that trust has shifted to Paul. Anyway, if you don't want to go with that, please send that paperwork back to me, okay? Yeah, I, I, can, all I, I, you know. I can do that. Um, so you you feel that like because I, listen, I don't I don't I don't I don't expect you to believe this unless you unless you take the time to examine the whole thing, I, you know. I I really don't. Imagine being in prison for over twenty years. When you went in there, there were phone booths, taxis, and bicycles. Now. It's cell phones, rideshare apps, and electric scooters. The Uncuff Project has recognized a need within our community to make those formerly incarcerated whole again by providing basic resources like help getting IDs or setting up cell phones and other aspects of everyday life. As one previously incarcerated man put it, getting out isn't the finish line, it's the starting line. Help us help those starting over. Go to theuncuffedproject.org to support and learn more. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, and I wanted to... Thanks for... Uh, I wanted to talk to you just to clarify um, what, where Ken got his information, because his book is... This call and your telephone monitored and recorded is mostly just based on your account and your memories of your relationship with Mike. Okay. Well, this is Paul Mazzi, the person who Ken claims killed the Zodiac killer unknowingly in a fight years ago. I don't want to do anything to uh, hurt him in any way or sink his ship, but I, I have some issues with him and his book. The book is loosely based on my life, and I provided some of the content. In your first letter, you wrote that, you know, it's like the whole book is based on on the content that I provide, and that's not true. Only parts of it are. The the rest of it is his his dialogue. It's, It's his, you know, it's his brainstorm. It's his baby. It's strange. Ken and Paul, as you'll soon learn, are some of the only people that actually believe this Zodiac story. Yet Ken goes off the deep end in his writing, kind of invents things. And this, of course, annoys Paul, who really believes this theory. Yeah, I think so. He's just frustrated me to no end. Uh, uh, in in, in one, one section of his book, uh, in the scene where uh, dies, he, he has me down as a five foot seven, basically a, a midget against the, the gigantic Goliath. And he's got my arrest report right there with him. I'm five eleven. This seemed to last for hours, me begging him to put the guns away. He was calling me a pussy and making a variety of vulgar comments, labeling me as cowardly in the face of the shotgun. I kept asking him to go to the bathroom, 
or down to Albertsons to call my sons, but nothing was working. You'll never see your kids again, he said. Oh, yes, I will, and bumped by him, bolting a couple steps to the patio door. But as usual, it was hard to open, and he stood up quickly, trying to aim the shotgun at me. So I charged toward him, knocked the shotgun to the floor with my left arm, and punched him in the head as hard as I could with my right. No effect on him. Great pain in my knuckles. As he bangs me into the table and kitchen cabinets, it was like wrestling with a bear standing up. I'm hanging on now, but twisted in front of him, closely face to face so he cannot break away and aim the rifle. As we twisted, hanging on with one arm, I grabbed a butcher knife off the stove and drove it awkwardly into his back and out. Nothing. That was from Ken's book, purportedly based off of Paul Mazzi's memories. But he refused to take my direction. It had to be his way. The, the central story, though, when you noticed when the, the Zodiac Killer, um, that became popular again because the movie was released and you noticed a similarity in handwriting, your, the central claim that right. he was the Zodiac Killer is something that you stand by. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, I kind of understand why Paul is so annoyed because he believes this. And one of the main advocates is messing it up with fictionalizing the story. There's a lot in Ken's book about and describes him. It's fairly deflammatory. Do you agree with that depiction of this? uh, Totally. The, uh, everything that Ken has written about Mike is true. Nobody can tell that kind of story better than Ken. He's just really good at, but the problem is nobody believes him. Yeah, they, that must uh, be frustrating. They, they, hang on. So this is, this is very difficult for me, okay? Because I don't want to leave him behind. But he, he's, he's like a, as I've referred to him before, he's like a dog with a bone. And he won't give that bone up. I am always willing to forgive and move on. And I, I don't want to leave him behind because I truly believe that he did these things. It's, you know, yeah. he, he told me he killed a bunch of people. He told me he killed a bunch of people. And he was always in a drunken stupor to, to numb the pain. He always left his house in disguise and I can go over and over and over and over the things that he did. I've reached out to a couple family members of the person Paul and Ken are accusing. One of them said that he was a tyrant of a man. Perhaps Paul had a very unhealthy relationship with this person. Uh, When I finally saw the America's Most Wanted episode, and there was his picture on the screen, and there was his handwriting on the screen. I said, well, there it is. That's the reason he was crazy. But I, I wouldn't give up on Ken. I would give up on him if I were you. Okay. I, I just want to thank you for calling. And uh, it's unfortunately gotten a little bit messy between you and Paul, which... Yeah. Which I I mean Paul's a nice guy and he he says very nice things about you. Uh, yeah. He just just he doesn't like what you've done with the story 
you know, after looking into it, um, there's not a lot we can corroborate or um, sure. confidently yeah. say. But I, I wanted sure. to answer the question as to the big question is why dedicate so much time to this? How come you keep pushing for it even when Paul, your main source, uh, disagrees with you? That's the thing I've been trying to get to. Well, okay. The, 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 the main reason I, I really got into it is because uh, after my own experience uh, with, with uh, going to a jury trial where, where many of the uh, true facts about the victim was hidden away from the jury. Ken is saying his trial was unfair. Here, here it is a, a decade and a half later. I run into Paul, and here I found a guy who had a first-degree murder plea bargained with with no investigation. Mm. It resonated with you because of your trial. When you see people when they're down and out. Ken's friend, Joe. And you have all the time in the world to chit-chat. Paul's trial, oh. and that, that kind of brought you together. Yeah. It's different. You know, it's like being in a desert and you meet a kindred folk and you're both sitting there drinking water and there's no water you know you hook up you know you you lock in your brains lock in i asked ken and paul if their friendship was why they researched this theory and it is very well researched they've got a lot of documents a lot of court records they've put a lot of time into it ken is basically an expert on the zodiac killer at this point but both of them say that they're just committed to the truth. And I understand it's insulting to say that they are just killing time. But they do have time to kill because of the sentences they've received. And Ken is aging, and he's been locked up longer than I've been alive. Ken's friends and family have noticed. Oh, actually, he's had several medical issues over the last eight years, I'd say. Wow. <laughs> He didn't look the same. I was a little shocked. And I'm like, oh my God, you got old. <laughs> he goes, didn't we all? And I said, I don't know about you. I think I look good for my age. And, and the guy is getting up in the age. His health is not that good. They're wasting money keeping him in there. I didn't know anything about his open heart surgery. Nobody contacted me about that. I told him before, you know, whenever he gets sprung, he can come and stay with us or whatever he has to do until he's on his feet. I can't imagine being stuck where he's at but he's made the best of it. I hope it's not going to be a culture shock for him if they let him out. Because he's not a youngster anymore. No one knows who the Zodiac Killer is. A new team says that they do, but doesn't look like it. Ken is locked up and aging, and there are many like him. Well, not quite like Ken. I was taught to respect my elders. Most cultures have it as a pillar. But I feel we're taught to respect them because it's beneficial to us. It's similar to how we talk about diversity. Diversity is good for the company. Here's the data. We can prove it. It's good to respect your elders. They are wise. They can advise you. Maybe we need to respect our elders, not because it's good for us, but because it's just part of the deal. We're born and depend on others till we're young adults. 
then we foolishly call ourselves independent while stepping into a society created by others. In our working years, we further our stability and independence, but only through economic cooperation. We depend on people. We then grow old and depend on others again, but in a different way that we sometimes mock, having Kleenex in every pocket, <laughs> not keeping up with the lingo. But for some reason, society taking care of you as an aging person is called respect. But when society provides for you as a young person, it's called independence. We have one final story with Marvin Much. Marvin spent over 40 years incarcerated until he was finally exonerated. But this story has to do with the aging population in prison. There was this old man in San Quentin. He was, he had to be 80 years old, very skinny. Uh, his pants never fit. He had a cane and he would come down the tier from his cell and he would go five, ten steps and his pants would fall down. He'd lean his cane up against the bars of a cell and he'd pull his pants up and he'd take his cane and he'd hobble down another five, ten steps and his pants would fall down. And this is how he traveled around the prison. And at least twice a week, he would stop and ask somebody, where am I? And they'd say, you're in prison. He'd go, I'm in prison. What did I do? Oh, well, I don't know. I was head of an organization that represented the grievances of the prison population I went and talked to him. He's a he's a, a veteran. He served in the war. I filed a writ for him saying that it was unconstitutional to punish somebody if they don't know why they're being punished. And uh, he was released into a secured veteran's home. Uh, the system uh, is very dangerous for those people. In prison, weakness is... Uh, uh, like a beacon for predators. They will prey on you if you're weak. And when you get older, you get weaker. And so old people are preyed upon by the other convicts and they're abused. And even the administration of the prison, the people that run the prisons, they look at old people as a nuisance. You know, the community rid themselves of this person who was probably a nuisance to their neighborhood, brought them to prison. Now they're a nuisance in San Quentin and the prison resents it. And so they get no competent help. That's that's about to change, but uh, old people in prison don't fare well, and uh, so I'm 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 really glad that this guy was able to find his way to a veterans' home, and uh, I'm I mean, every time something like that happens, I'm involved with it. I always say, well, if nothing else happens, good. This is good right here, and so I I survived on those things. It's like, well, there, there's a reason I'm here, you know. Yeah. We've graduated two classes of compassionate caregivers uh, in, in Brothers Keepers. Uh, there's still not a physical hospice there, but there are Brothers Keepers there to um, lay a hand of compassion on their departing brothers because there's still people dying in their cells. And so they're there in the cell block with them trying to ease their transition as they can. But uh, today I am, uh, I am the policy and public information person for the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Yeah, you're going hard. Do, do you ever feel any, I, I can't think of a more precise word than survivor's guilt. Um, 
I left people in there that I love. I love them. And I do have this strange psychology that I carry with me that, you know, when I'm sitting in a park like this or I'm driving in my car or I just open the refrigerator, it hits me at the oddest times that they're still in their cage. They can't do this. And I feel ashamed sometimes. I'm out here and they should be out here with me. Uh, but I realized that I kicked on the wall long enough from the inside that I could actually push it over from this side. Thank you for listening. Navigating Freedom was created by the Uncuffed Project. Its producers are Spoon Jackson, Damon Cook, with contributor producer Brian Mazza, who uh, produced on this episode, hooked us up with all of these interviews, and help from Lisa Strong. It is edited, mixed, and music done by me, Matthew Schneeman. To learn more about the Uncuffed Project and the work that they do, go to theuncuffedproject.org. Special thanks to Leo Wexlerman and Elaine Williams of Fourth Floor Records, a YouTube channel that I contribute to. Some of the music from this episode came from that collaboration.